Feeling good like we knew you would. Let me hear you, you scream and shout. shout. The your role is the scream and shout. I did the ooh ooh. Just I also, it. I also did it. I should have stopped. You actually is overpowered it, hers. Is it ooh ooh or is it's all ooh? No, it's if you're feeling good like I know you want me to scream and shout. I don't know. She screwed it up. Now I can't oh, remember. I did not screw She's, it up. Yeah, Stephanie, how are we going to do this whole podcast with you sitting right there with your smug screwed it up face? Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to The Debrief, a weekly Q&A podcast from your friends here at Sandals Church. I'm Justin Party, the man with two thumbs up. I'm Stephanie Keene, a woman with uh, also, two, I don't know, two thumbs. I had, you I just, had, I'm you, terrible you at this part. You just put limp wrists up into the I air. just sort of like flopped yeah. my hands in disappointment. Way to start off with completely wrecking the show. I'm and PMB. Exactly. With, <laughs> with his hands firmly folded, nicely yes. in his lap <laughs> and sticking those yeah. thumbs up. It is uh, Pastor Matt Brown. Well, hey, uh, this is a weekly show we do here at Sandals Church, taking your questions that come up from the sermons, our reading that we do uh, on la- uh, online or whatever through the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> we just find articles on the internet and we talk <laughs> yes, about them. Ex- exactly. Guys, let's talk about the stuff that I read on Twitter last night. Yeah, please know. Saw some really cute stuff on Insta. (laughs) Okay, yeah, exactly. Uh, So we are super excited to jump into it, and uh, we love taking your questions. We sure do. So if you have questions that come up as we are walking through the book of Acts for the remainder of this year, we would love to hear them, and you can send those in anytime at sandalschurch.com slash the debrief. Or you can follow us on facebook.com slash the debrief podcast and send us a message that way, whichever one makes you happy. Now listen, (laughs) speaking of making people happy, you guys make us happy each and every single week when you subscribe, you download, you share the show, but most of all, you leave us those beautiful five-star reviews in iTunes. And today I want to share with you two of my favorite, most recent reviews. This first one comes from Bob Swank. And before we talk about his review, we got how about that last name? Seriously, dude, last name. I bet he's swanky, dude. That guy's got that guy's got to be smooth. I'm Mm gonna be, yeah, exactly. I'm be real disappointed if if I meet you someday, Bob, and and you don't just. Yeah. Normal. I hope you're a real handsome man. Yeah. <laughs> Best last name ever, though. Remember Studley? Ooh, yes. Yeah, boom. <laughs> that was, oh, yeah, that was pretty good. awesome. Enough dude, said. Dude, Steve Studley and Bob Swank, that's like literally. They should be like newscasters. Yeah, yeah. dude. That'd be, that'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's so great. He says, I love this podcast and the wisdom from Pastor Matt will forever enhance my walk of faith. Mm. Um, that's a, that's a, that's lot a swanky of comment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Bob. We, we can't go there. Uh, of course, we got one more excellent review from our friend KBlue80. Thank you so much for providing such an amazing tool that allows me to learn more, to which I will say, you're welcome. Yeah, we got you. <laughs> exactly. Hey, so we appreciate all of those reviews. Super encouraging for us. If you want to make us smile um, deeply from the core of our soul, we mm-hmm. would appreciate you guys uh, heading over to the iTunes store, leaving a five-star review for us. Uh, and you know, I think... A- like I don't, th- I feel like you're putting a lot of pressure on the five star review. Like they could give us an honest review, and we would still make us smile. I think it's what they have to say. An honest review would make me do the flat face emoji. A five star review, I promise you, I'm gonna smile. Okay, fair I'm enough. Just, just telling you you're, how it is. You're being honest. That's All fine. right, let's get in some questions. And before we jump into Acts chapter four, we got a couple of follow up questions today. They are both coming from our friend Kathy, who uh, is a listener on the show here, and she writes in and asks this. A couple episodes ago, you've talked about the concept of tithing. She and her husband have been talking about tithing themselves. And she said, is tithing meant to be done off gross income or after your expenses? My husband and I aren't quite seeing eye to eye on this one. Yeah. So I don't know that those two categories are entirely right. So I think tithing should be done off the amount that you receive. Now, I think where the discrepancy is amongst Christians is gross or net, not after expenses. You Mm -hmm. certainly don't 
you certainly don't give to God after you've paid all your bills. Your that, mortgage. No, yeah, no, that, that, that is not tithing. Um, you know, that's charitable giving, yeah. um, but it's certainly not tithing. So the concept of tithing is uh, one of two categories. You, you give off the gross of uh, amount, that is all that you make, or the net, that is what you receive after taxes. And so, um, you know, I would encourage Christians to pray about one of those two categories and decide. It is a substantial amount of money. So to put it in perspective, my wife and I's largest bill that we pay every month is our house payment, but a close second is what we write to the church. And that's just because we're committed to do that. And then, you know, Tammy and I, we give, we support missionaries over and above that. We give to Compassion International over, over and above that. And we give to people um, who are in need over and above that. So I don't take away from the church to give to charity. I mean, Jesus Christ gave everything to me. I want to give everything that I can to him. And that's something that we're passionate about. And I praise God that, um, you know, I have a wife who supports me in that. She did not grow up a tither. It was something that we had to work through uh, together. As a married couple, my parents were tithers, committed tithers. Um, and it's just it's just something that I, I deeply believe in. Uh, we could do a podcast at some point in time. I'm actually in my own personal quiet time. I'm going through the book of Hebrews. And it's just a reminder of hmm. why it is that in the Old Testament, you know, you gave your your tithe to the Aaronic priesthood, but it originally started with a guy by the name of Melchizedek, who Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And that's a whole nother conversation. But um, that's really when, for me, it just it just made me realize that I wanna do that. So I just would encourage you, you know, God wants you to give um, in a cheerful way. So God wants you both to be in agreement about that. And so, um, you know, get, start somewhere, give faithfully, give cheerfully, but but tithing is giving 10% of your income and not everybody's in agreement, gross or net, but tithing is not 10% on what you have left. That is not mm-hmm. tithing. And so the idea is to, to give to God first. Got it. Okay, so her next question uh, comes from something you said. Kathy on, has two questions. She did, she did. We, we took them both. Uh, last week or on the episode, you shared that you hate TV and would rather learn more about Jesus. So, buddy, what are some good books other than the Bible that you can recommend to learn more about Jesus from? Hmm. To be clear, Justin called you buddy, not Kathy. Yeah, well, because Kathy's thinking about tithing, I guess she gets two questions. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, part of it is, Kathy, it's it's not entirely spiritual. I'm an active person. I like being outside. I, I would much rather be doing something than sitting and watching. Um, so I'll watch a movie or TV when I'm stuck on an airplane, but that's sure. that's about it. Um, I like movies because it's a short commitment. You're in there for a couple hours, and then it's over. But TV shows have a way of hooking you. So, um, you know, I, I like, you know, I I don't know that I'm a good person to ask because I don't like like fantasy reading. I like Tolkien. I like C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite authors that people have kind of forgotten about, he's dead now, um, is M. Scott Peck in the 80s. Uh, um, the Road Less Traveled, People mm-hmm. of the Lie. Those are great books um, that I just love. Um, I love anything by N.T. Wright. Um, so that's all I can think of offhand right now, but I'm not reading anything right now. I'm really focused on the scriptures and I spend a lot of time reading commentaries so that I can do this show. Yeah. So that, yeah, you guys had me reading uh, four hours yesterday. So thanks a lot uh, for this show. Thank Dude, you. My son came into the room and said, Dad, you read too much, so... He was actually lecturing me about reading too much. So Kathy, right now, I'm not reading a lot of fun stuff. I'm actually trying to write my own book. So trying to get through that so you can pray for that. And um, hopefully that'll be coming out soon. So Awesome. 
All right, well, let's jump into it with Acts chapter 4, and this whole deal picks up kind of at the end of Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John healed the crippled beggar, and it starts off in verses 1 through 3. The scripture tells us, when Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees, and they arrested them. So I'm just trying to understand, as we do this, to go through the book of Acts, the authority of the Jewish leaders here, because I've read the rest of the book, and I know that there are plenty more of arrests to come. So did the Jewish leaders just have the free authority to arrest whomever they want and imprison them? Yeah, they had, the Jews had a lot of authority, which is why the Sadducees are so concerned about this idea of Messiahship. So you're going to see this in uh, this week's chapter and in next week's chapter in chapter five, this concept of Messiah is, is extremely threatening to the Sadducees. And why is that? Because they have benefited incredibly from Roman rule. They have a position of power, they have mm-hmm. religious authority, they can put people to jail. And at times, you know, they say in the trial of Jesus that we can't put people to death. And so that was a law on paper, but the reality is in a couple chapters, they're gonna kill Stephen. So they did have... They did have quite a bit of authority, and Rome gave uh, religions and institutions far more freedom, say, than the Greeks did. The Greeks were far more restrictive on the type of worship you can do. So if you were conquered by Alexander the Great, you didn't have a lot of freedom, uh, almost no freedom. And so uh, Rome had a different perspective on that. Worship whatever you want, as long as you pay your taxes to Caesar and you don't riot. So yeah, they have a lot of authority, and the height of their authority was on the temple. So Rome... Rome, was very, very careful to um, give uh, the Jews authority on the Temple Mount, like even today. So uh, Israelis, right? The temple is in Israel, it's in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. which is the capital of, uh, of um, Israel, the new Israel today. So it's the capital, but when you go onto the Temple Mount, Palestinians have authority there. Got so it. there's Palestinian, uh, there's Muslim uh, police officers that are up there. And so when you're going up to the temple, you're actually submitting yourself to their authority. And it's kind of a sketchy place when you go up there. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting that even today, the Jews recognize that because there's mosques on the Temple Mount today and not the Jewish worship center any longer, they give them uh, some leeway there. So, and the same thing was happening there is, you know, the Romans are like, worship whatever you want, just don't riot, just don't be a problem. And so they have a lot of authority. The second you walk into uh, the temple, you're walking into their authority. And so they can do just about anything they want. I mean, they don't ask for, like, as you can see, the Romans permission to arrest them Mm -hmm. and they just do it. So then who is the captain of the temple guard? Is he a Jew? Yeah, he's a Jewish person. He's called the Sagan, which is his uh, Jewish title. And the Sagan is the second most powerful position in the temple. Uh, the uh, high priest is the most powerful. The Sagan really, it translated in English, the captain of the guard. He is really probably being groomed. Think of him like the vice president, um, being groomed to be the president, okay. being groomed to step up into that position. And so he is responsible for the security of the temple and his job is to make sure that nothing gets out of control. And so that's why he seizes him, uh, uh, James and John, and he has the power and authority to do that. And he has guards, policemen at his discretion in order to back that up. So he doesn't just have verbal authority, he actually has physical authority with police and uh, you know soldiers with swords and spears and you know shields to enforce uh, his will. Okay, so Let's keep going. Verse four says the number of believers now totaled about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So this is all being written by Luke, who also wrote the gospel of Luke, which took place over about like a three year time period. Right. Uh, 
Acts seems to have been written over covering a much longer period of time. I'm wondering if we have any idea the amount of time that's passed between the end of Acts chapter 2 when we had 3,000 believers, and now all of a sudden we've got 5,000 believers. Yeah, so you're right. The, the Gospel of Luke covers a three-year period. Um, well, a little more than that because it starts off with the birth of Jesus Christ, okay. and it goes, you know, the last story is when he's 12, then there's this huge gap, and then about 30 you know, that's where the majority of Jesus's life. So technically uh, the gospel of Luke covers a period of about 30 years, but really, you know, there's the brief uh, portion at his birth, Got it. the little encounter when he's 12, but then the vast majority of it is a three-year period in mm-hmm. his ministry. The book of Acts seems to cover about four decades, four to five decades of time. And so, you know, I'll try to walk you through this, but this is still pretty early on. Uh, this is very, very early. I mean, I can't say it's within the first year or first month, but it's 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 fairly soon. I mean, mm-hmm. they just were full of the Holy Spirit. They're just now preaching. They're still in Jerusalem. Yeah. Uh, the temple really still is the center for corporate worship and teaching. Oh, and yeah. so, yeah, so they're they're coming on a regular basis. And so this may be weeks, um, you know, each Sabbath, they're coming back to the temple to um, do something or, or last week they're just headed up for the prayer time. And, um, you know, so this is super early on in the life of the church. And so far things are, things are good until this moment. They've been allowed some freedom to preach and to teach, but now um, the criticism is gonna show up, persecution is gonna show up. And then, you know, some of the apostles are gonna, are gonna start dying. So it's, it's, it's gonna get really, really rough from here on. Uh, In verses 8 through 12, um, Peter is responding to the rulers, and he says, Rulers and elders of our people, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he says, There is salvation in no one else, talking about Jesus. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So these rulers that he's talking to and saying this to, are those the same rulers then who killed Jesus? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so Luke uses the word rulers because he's speaking to a Greek audience who may not understand, just like your question is, who is the Sadducee? What is the captain? How does this work? And so he's using the word rulers there to help a Gentile audience like you and me understand, okay, these are the people in power. These are the people in charge. And yeah, they're the absolutely the same people uh, who would have crucified Christ. And you're gonna you're gonna see that in next week's chapter. They're saying, you're trying to make us guilty for this man's blood. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally you're trying to hold us responsible for the death of Jesus because they are responsible yeah, are, for the yes. death of Jesus. And so absolutely, they're the same, same people. Okay, so verse 11, Stephanie said it before. He says, the stone you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. W- what does that mean? And specifically, why is he calling, calling the Jewish leaders the builders? Right, because... From Genesis to Revelation, God is building a kingdom. He's building a family and he's inviting the nations to be a part of that. And so the call of Abraham is not a call just to be a Jew and to be a follower of God, but to be a light into the nations and to be the father of many nations, inviting them into the kingdom of God. And so Jews were supposed to be this group that's building you know, this kingdom okay. uh, for God. And, and it's interesting that they're actually standing on a physical manifestation of their understanding of that building. So mm-hmm. you guys were supposed to build this. However, as you're standing on the stones where you think God's working, you've actually rejected the very cornerstone of which God is really building, which is not a physical temple, but a spiritual temple. So it. it's sad that the architects of God's kingdom actually built their own kingdom and they're now missing out on what they think their life is dedicated to. They think they're doing the will of God, but what they're actually doing is they're fighting against the will of God and they're not building his temple, they're building their own. And so, um, you know, this idea of stones uh, is something that you see in the early church fathers with Irenaeus and Polycarp. And these are a bunch of guys that you probably never heard of, but they're the disciples of Paul uh, who discipled Timothy and Titus and Titus and Timothy discipled these guys. And when they write, they often refer to Christians as bricks. 
Like we're all these little bricks and God is building us together into this family of God to this That's temple. Cool. And you see that in, in, in the writings, you know, of Peter and Paul were referred to as part of something God's building. And so mm-hmm. the reality is we're all built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Then it's his apostles and then it's us and he's building this family. And these guys are missing out on the kingdom of God that they proclaim to be talking about and inviting people to. And that's just so tragic. Um, and that's why Jesus said, on the day of judgment, many people will say, I did all of this work in your name. And he's gonna say, depart me, I never, I never knew you because you built your own house. Mm-hmm. You built your own kingdom. I was building my kingdom. And again, following Jesus is leaving the kingdom of me for the kingdom of we. It's saying no to yourself and saying yes to his church and his family. And that's what God has called us to. Mm-hmm. So um, up next, at the end of this conversation, it says the leaders ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men? We can't deny that they performed a miraculous sign and everyone in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. So these guys are seeing miracles happen. They saw this guy healed. Why are they telling them not to talk to anyone or let it spread? Wouldn't they at least want to, like, these guys are doing good stuff. Like, why would they want to just stop that? Yeah, because I think the the bottom line is, you know, politicians are a peculiar breed of people. Mm -hmm. They're not always interested in truth and righteousness. They're interested in staying in power. And that's why when you see, you know, the events that are taking place, you get so confused with um, why leaders do what they do and say what they say. Because instead of doing what's right for the people, they ultimately use it for their own political power or to be politically correct or whatever else. And so here their interest is, is in being in power. And, and here's the tragedy. They really don't care about the cripple guy. They care about themselves. Yeah. Again, following Jesus is moving from the kingdom of me, right? What's in it for me? What's God gonna do for me? How's God gonna bless me to this kingdom of we? Hey, look what God did for somebody else. And it's it's actually discovering joy in seeing God bless others. And so that's one of the ways where you can see areas in your heart where God still needs to work is, and you're gonna see this ultimately uh, in the next chapter where they're filled with jealousy because they're about themselves. They're not about God. What has God done for me lately? How is God gonna bless me? How's God gonna give me more power? How's God gonna give me more finances, more input, you know, more whatever? Right. And they don't care about what this guy's doing. They really, really don't. And, um, you know, and ultimately God's the only leader, right? He's the only good shepherd that ultimately lays his life down for the sheep. That's what makes Jesus extraordinarily different is mm-hmm. our king died for his people. I mean, everywhere else in human history, right? People die for their king and that is seen as noble. But our story is our king died for us. And so it's completely different because our shepherd is actually interested in the well-being of every single sheep. Like in the story of the hundred sheep, 99 are safe. He goes after the one because he cares not just about the masses of his people, but his people as individuals. And so he reaches out to find them and save them. And so um, I think it's just, it's just tragic. And it just shows you the hardness of hearts. Mm-hmm. And it's why so many of us are frustrated with our, our friends that don't come to know Christ. And it's because you have no idea how hard our hearts are and how filled with self-righteousness, self-indulgence and self-focus we are that even when you see something good, they, they find a way to criticize it. Well, they're not, they're not, you know, because their question to Peter is by what authority? And what they're really asking is, where'd you go to school, Peter? What are your credentials mm-hmm. for doing this, right? So think about it, you know, uh, Loma Linda or Kaiser Permanente hears about this guy healing people. Well, they're gonna wanna know where's his training rather than simply saying, wait a minute, this guy is touching people and they're being healed by cancer. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think Kaiser Permanente and Loma Linda are just gonna celebrate? No, because if people aren't sick and don't need medicine, what do they do, <laughs> right? Oh, 
So, you know, and I'm not throwing medical professionals under the bus, but the reality is it's a business. And so even people who are in the business of healing oftentimes are skeptical when it comes to the miraculous nature. And so these guys care about themselves, not this person. And, you know, and we've all got to be, we, we all have to watch this spirit in the church because people will say, well, I'm not getting anything, anything out of the message. I'm not getting anything out of the worship. I don't like the worship. And uh, I was actually talking to a young man. I think we talked about this last week. He said, I, I can't find a church where I like the teaching and the worship. Yeah. Well, he's not searching for the church of Jesus Christ. He's searching for the church of self. Mm-hmm. And, um, and unfortunately, you know, people visit churches um, and it's not, and I'm not saying that you should go someplace where you're miserable, but if you're going to a church solely for the purpose of yourself, you're not going for Jesus. And so there has to be something about your church life and church worship that is selfless. Otherwise, it's not full of Christ's fullness. So Peter and John respond to these guys in what I think is a pretty interesting way if you actually stop to think about it. And they they say, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. So they're basically rejecting, I'm going to do like air quotes, the law of the land here Mm -hmm. um, to follow God's authority. How do we know the right way to make decisions like that? Yeah, it's very, very difficult. And if you're, if you're a Christian listening to this, you need to be, you need to pay very, very close attention because the laws of our land are changing. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, if you own a, you know, a cake shop or a wedding photographer, a wedding photographer. And so, um, you know, my my prayer is that hope my prayer and I, and I love our country. My prayer is that hopefully we will get to the place where we can truly become tolerant and respect our differences. And so, um, you know, I think that a, a person, you know, of conscience should be able to say, I don't want to participate in America in this religious ceremony because it is by definition religious. And I'm hoping that the courts will ultimately uphold this idea of, I don't have to, participate in your religious ceremony. And that's what a wedding is, you know, something like that. But for now, the courts are basically saying, no, you have to sell a cake for a gay wedding. And so Christians are going to have to make their own decision and come to their own conclusion of what God's calling them to do. And let me just say, some Christians are going to come to the conclusion, I cannot do this cake and I will pay the consequences. And others are going to come to the conclusion, this is a way to minister and reach out and, mm-hmm. and show love. And both are right. And that's the problem is, is you really, as a Christian, need to be asking yourself, what is God telling you to do in that specific circumstance, in that situation? Because um, a lot of times Christians use this verse to just be a jerk, you know? And you need to really ask yourself, is, has God spoken to you on this issue? And so here, what's at stake is the proclamation of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So I think Peter and John and Paul historically say, do whatever you can to submit to the laws of the land, right? Nero is way worse than anything we could ever imagine as uh, you know, president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And so all these Christians say, well, that's not my president. You have no idea what the early church endured. The only thing they wouldn't compromise on and ultimately why Christians went to their death yeah. was because they refused to say that Caesar was Lord. They, they said, only Jesus is Lord. We cannot deny that fact. And so they died for that. So you gotta be very, very careful. And what Peter and John are going to die for is not baking a cake. Mm-hmm. What they're going to die for and give their lives up for is we cannot stop talking about Jesus. And so, um, you know, so it, you know, if you're a baker, if you're a photographer, wh- where does God draw the line? It's with the proclamation of the gospel. Everything else, we need to as Christians understand that we're going to have different approaches and different stands, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately 
What the Bible says is, is you can't violate your own conscience. If you believe something that is sin and you participate in it, you're sinning. So don't do that. Um, you know, and that's why for me, uh, I don't think that I would attend, you know, a, a wedding of, of two same-sex people. I can wish them well. I can appreciate them. They can be my neighbors. They can even be my friends, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't participate in that. But another Christian brother or sister in Christ could have a different point of view and feel like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a representative of Jesus and I want to be a part and I want to share, you know, um, God's love. And you know what? Am I wrong? Are they right? No, we have to follow our conscience as we believe that God uh, is speaking to us. And we have to be ready to embrace, like we said on Sunday, adversity and criticism. Mm-hmm. I mean, not everybody that's listening is gonna agree with what I just said. I'm sure. not telling you to do what I'm going to do. I'm saying that's what I would do in that situation. The only place where I would say we all need to do this is we cannot be silent about Jesus Christ being Lord and him being the only way that you can be forgiven. We need to universally say it is not okay to be forced to be silent about our faith. That mm-hmm. is unacceptable. And so we must, as Christians, partake of whatever consequence there is if we are forced to be silent. We cannot do that. And so that is a non-negotiable. All these other issues, you know, we need to try to figure that out as individuals who have the Holy Spirit speaking in and through us to our specific situations. And so you can't just give these blanket statements that says, you know, don't always do this or always do this. Right. And so be very careful because a lot of Christians screw up their lives because really they're they're making a stand for their own stubbornness, their own personality, their own disposition, and it's not necessarily the will of God and they pay the consequences for it. So if I'm going to suffer, I don't want to suffer because of my stupidity. I want to suffer. <laughs> I've done enough of that. Yeah, because of my faith in God. And that's what I want to do. So those are my that's my two cents on that. Good stuff. Yeah. So as they're wrapping up this conversation with the leaders, they sort of recount what happened to Jesus and how Jesus was killed by the rulers in the land. And in verse 28, they say, but everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. Um, Are the early believers talking just about what happened to Jesus? Or are they saying that everything that happens is determined beforehand according to God's will? Yeah, so here specifically, they're saying that everything about Jesus happened beforehand. But in the book of Acts, what you're gonna see unveiled over and over and over again is this is all working according to God's plan. Like mm-hmm. as human beings, right? We, we're, doing, we're doing all our stuff and we think that we have all this say and all this authority. And the reality is that no matter what we do, God's will wins. His plan will happen. It doesn't mean that we don't have a part to play. It doesn't mean that our, our disobedience doesn't affect uh, people's outcomes or our outcomes, but it means that in the end, God's will will be done. It will happen. Um, you know, Christ will win. People will be saved from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The gospel will go forth. Satan will be defeated. Death will end. There will be a new heaven. There will be a new earth. There will be a real hell where people will really spend eternity. All of those things, you know, can happen. And, um, you know, people always ask me this question, you know, this, the stupid way that people ask it is, if God is so powerful, can he, you know, um, create a rock that he's so big that he can't pick up? And it's just like, you know, that's, that's a logical, you know, fallible. It's just, it's a stupid statement. But when someone, what they're really saying, is there anything that God can't do? And the Bible mm-hmm. actually says there is. He cannot lie. Hmm. It's, it's, it's impossible for God to lie because his very nature is truth. And so what he speaks, he has no reason to lie. He, or he has, there's, I mean, he is God. And so he speaks the truth. And so he has spoken, the nations will be saved, that Jesus Christ is his chosen one. All of these things are happening and nothing, even if the entire world rejects Jesus and burns every church, Christ still wins. 
he is still the vicar of God hmm. and he wins. And so, um, you know, when I was in uh, Istanbul, I don't know, maybe 2008 or nine, it was my first time. I got to go to the head of the Greek Orthodox church. So it's kind of like the Greeks Pope. Uh-huh. And I went there and had this interesting conversation with him, but he, ha- he, ho- he holds this thing called, it's the vicar. And it's this huge like Gandalf staff. And, and it's this, I mean, it's literally a thousand years old wow. and it's made with like the most precious metals you can imagine. The thing weighed like a hundred pounds and he carries it. And on top of this beautiful ornate staff is a, a snake whose head is split in two and the cross is stabbing it down to the bottom. Whoa. And it reminds the church that no matter what we endure, we've already won. And he carries that and think about that. So here he is having church in a predominantly Muslim country. They've been defeated, right? Christianity has been run out. Most Turkish people don't even know they were a Christian country for a thousand years mm-hmm. before Islam ever came. And he's holding that stating, we have already won. It just hasn't happened yet. And wow. so God's will will be done. It was really, really cool. Hmm. So. We had a great conversation. He asked me what religion I was. And I said, I was Baptist. He said, like George Bush. <laughs> that's funny. I think George Bush is actually a Methodist, but. That is awesome. But it was pretty funny. Uh, that sounds like a pretty rad tattoo out there. So if any of you guys want to get one of those and send yeah. in a picture, we will put it on the debrief podcast page. Yeah. I think Stephanie should get it on her neck. Oh, you know, I've awesome. been looking into a neck tattoo. So that yeah. sounds great. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, that'll, that'll make you look so godly. <laughs> that just probably terrified my up- mother because there's a part of her that's like, is she? I'm not mom. <laughs> That is awesome. Okay, so the believers are praying and they're uh, basically praising God as Peter and John have been freed. And in that prayer, they say, Now, O Lord, stretch out your hand with healing power. This is verse 29 and 30. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What I thought was interesting about that prayer is they're not praying for like a specific miracle, like that somebody would be healed or set free from prison or whatever. They're just praying that God would, I guess, just be doing a whole bunch of miracles, more like the one with the cripple there. Is that something that we should be focusing our prayers on now as Christians? Just general miracles? Oh, absolutely. You know, if you want miracles specifically, you need to learn to pray for them generally. So God wants you, again, we need to pray selfless prayers. God wants you to be praying for God's mighty works, his moving hand, not just in your life, but in the life of his church. And so the church is crying out, not for a specific miracle, but for powers, signs, and wonders, not for themselves, so that the world will know that Christ is King, so that the world will be able to see substantial evidence to the mighty working power of Jesus. And that's what we need to pray for as a church is not God simply heal this person, not God uh, you know, bless us here financially, but God move amongst us in a way that people have to be forced to, to deal with Jesus in some way. We're literally, they're forced to go, okay, I don't believe in Jesus, but something is happening here that I cannot explain. And... Um, that's what we want to see at Sandals Church. We want people to see that God is doing something. That's my hope for this weekend when we bring black pastors together, you know, that maybe there will be people who are not Christians and say, you know what, I don't, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but something is happening at Sandals Church. You know, his wonder, his power, his love is definitely at work. And so I may not agree with what everything I think Christians are, but but something is happening there that I can't, I can't deny. And that's our prayer for as a church is that God that when people come to Sandals Church, when people run into us as Christians, that they would be able to sense and see that we have been with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And they may not know all that that means, but that somehow our personality is different. Our disposition is different. We're more kind. We're more loving. We're more forgiving. We have more grace. And that's, that's the call on all of our lives. And by the way, the greatest miracle that God can produce is, is helping soften your personality. That's what people are like. Like you are the hardest field 
in which God works. Cancer is not the most difficult miracle that God has to work with. It's your personality. It's your traits. And I'm sorry, I'm pointing at you, That's okay. My wife's at home just saying, preach, preach. It's all of us. And so, um, you know, the way that we want God to work in us is the older we get, the sweeter we are and the kinder we are and uh, the more like Jesus we are. Hmm. Can I say something too? By the way, I was listening to last week's episode again, two days ago, and I thought it was so awesome that you straight up called out your personality as a sin. I thought that was really bold and humble and challenging to me. I called out my personality as a sin? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. (laughs) Anyways, that was good. Sometimes I drop wisdom and I'm ignorant of it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I usually drop problems and I'm ignorant of them. Hey, listen, if you heard that stuff and you're getting fired up and you're like, man, I want to do that. Just so you know, some of the community groups that we have here at Sandals Church gather specifically every single week around this idea of praying for our church. Uh, We have teams that meet sometimes on the weekends and other times throughout the week uh, to be praying for uh, our church generally and then also so for specific prayer requests that people send in on the weekends. And then after all of our services, we have uh, people who can receive prayers for people across all of our locations. If you're interested in getting involved in one of those groups or teams or something, just let us know. You can either send us a message at the the, the debrief on Facebook or email hello at sandalsearch.com and let them know you want to get plugged into a prayer group or a prayer team. We'd love to help you get involved in one of those. Um, so after this, oh, sorry, I'm just going straight into the verse. Like I'm telling the story. Um, so they finished this in verse 31 says, after this prayer, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. So two chapters ago, the believers were baptized with the Holy spirit. And this sounds like that's kind of happening again. So does that, does that process happen over and over? Should we? No, the baptism of the Holy spirit is a one-time event. Uh, Pentecost, like we said before, is a one-time non-duplicated event. Um, and so when you hear people talking about second Pentecost or stuff like that, I, I disagree. The birth of a church, it's just like you, you know, you, you're not born twice, right? Mm-hmm. We're born physically and we're born spiritually. That's it. There's not a third birth, mm-hmm. you know? And so what's happening here, and this is what we all need to understand is even though we are baptized by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives the moment that we repent of our sins. I think there's a verse, I can't believe, remember if it's in this chapter, or the next chapter where Peter says, um, God will give the Holy Spirit to all those who obey him. Mm. And so ultimately, how do we obey him? It's by repenting of our sins and placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We all receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. However, having said that as a Christian, you know, for over, um, you know, 35 years, I have had multiple fillings of the Holy Spirit, multiple encounters with God's Spirit. And we want that. We want to see that. We want to experience that. I mean, it's, you know, to me, it's like if you've been married for a long time, there, there are moments in your relationship where there's this renewal of relationship. There's mm-hmm. this renewal of, of passion and intensity and, and, and all natural relationships. You know, people always say, well, we're, you know, I, we're more in love every day than we've ever been. Well, then you're not in love because love flows because we're, we're, we're emotional people and there's peaks and there's valleys and that's the way that it goes. And, and, and with God, we're gonna have moments of extreme, you know, ecstasy where we're just like, enthralled with the grace and power of God. And we're going to have valleys where we have to grow through God and not, not become solely dependent upon experience. And that's what happens with a lot of my charismatic brothers and sisters is they become addicted to the experience and they've got to learn to walk with Jesus when there's a void there. Just like in marriage, you got to learn to work out the relationship when you don't have the warm fuzzies and you don't have you know the ecstasy of feelings and the intensity of romance. You have to learn to love and know each other, you know, in those valleys, when you go through some difficult things, some financial troubles, the same thing is with God. And so there's these moments of difficulties. There's even moments of spiritual dryness where we wonder, I mean, Jesus says it best, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? 
Okay, this is a literal moment of spiritual dryness. It's not a feeling God is pulling is pulling back from Jesus and Jesus is on his own in that moment. And so God knows what we need best. And so there's moments where we need to walk through the desert and there's moments where we need to jump in the fountain and be filled with the water of life. And so um, the Holy Spirit is coming upon them because the church has been threatened and they're afraid. And this is new. This persecution is new and they now need God in a different way. Mm-hmm. They need God to give them a spirit of boldness in the face of persecution. And so God fills them all with the spirit. It's a beautiful thing. And notice they all proclaimed. So now it's not just Peter preaching. Now it's not just John proclaiming. And you're gonna see that in the next chapter. Now it's all the apostles. Everybody's proclaiming the gospel. It's like, look, we have to all do this. The enemy has turned up the heat. So we have to turn up the volume. And that's, that's the will of God. So whenever the heat is turned up on the Christians, what we need to do is we need to turn up the volume of the gospel. Unfortunately, what we do is we turn our volume down. We become timid, we become silent, we become quiet, we become unsure. It's in those moments of, you know, what should we do that the gospel must become loudest. And that's why with what's happening in our country, with the race divisions and the things that are happening and all of this ugliness, the gospel's volume must grow louder. Because ultimately the gospel is the story of reconciliation between man and God and between races. Mm-hmm. That's the, the ultimate fulfillment of God's will is that people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation come together unified in peace through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we worship and his blood was not only to bring us to God, but to bring us together. And so that's why the world needs the gospel. There cannot be racial healing. There cannot be re- re- racial reconciliation without the blood of Jesus. And why is that? Because the gospel mandates not only us repenting of our sins and receiving forgiveness from Christ, but it mandates that we hear the repentances of other sins Mm -hmm. and forgiving others. And so if I'm a black person who has been wronged by white people, who has been mistreated by white people, who have been, you know, uh, persecuted and uh, racially profiled by white people, the gospel is going to mandate me and lead me into receiving the repentance of, of my white brothers and sisters and vice versa. Um, you know, as, as a young white man, I had ugly encounters with a predominantly black high school. You know, uh, racism is not a disease that simply affects, uh, affects white people. It affects people of all colors. Mm-hmm. And I have met deeply racist black people who did things to me. Well, what I have to do is, is I have to be a minister of reconciliation and forgive and not judge cart, you know, Blanc, all people based upon the character of a few. And, um, and that's where the gospel is so powerful. And uh, I think it's because of Jesus. I have so many loving and amazing good friends who are black people that I can call on. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Tim Timberlake, who's coming this week to our church, you know, he calls my daughter, uh, his little marshmallow, you know, because she's white and it's not a racist comment. It's a, it's a comment of endearment. He loves her. Um, And it's recognizing that, um, yeah, our skin, our skin tones are different, but my daughter loves it when she calls him little marshmallow. It's, it's a really, really sweet thing. Yeah. And, he's, and what he is, is he's protective. He's very protective of her. And, and my kids are so excited that he's coming. And uh, our, our, our skin tones are different colors, but our, our hearts are covered by the same color of blood, hmm. the red blood that flowed from Christ. And so, so good. it's a beautiful thing.
Hey, that verse that you mentioned where Peter says that for anybody that's wondering is Acts chapter five, verse thirty-two. We are witness of these witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, who is given by God to those who obey Him. So, really, amen. Good stuff. Thanks for dropping the digits. Boom. All right, we got two last questions coming here from the very end of the chapter here, and uh, verses thirty-four through thirty-five. It goes like this: There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. So this kind of sounds a lot like the end of Acts chapter 2 um, from a couple weeks ago. And it seems like this verse, though, could be used to say that it's wrong to own a house or land when we could be giving that money to people in need. How do we respond to that idea? Yeah, absolutely not. We need you to own houses. We need you to own land because if you don't have those things and you're not making money, you can't give to the church and help us continually to support the church. So one of the things that you need to notice um, in the text is the Greek language speaks, you know, you have tenses, you have past tense, you have present tense, mm-hmm. you have future tense. And all of these tenses are in the past. So they did do this. I mean, right? These, these are things that happened in the past. So this wasn't a continual never ending process because what happens if everybody brings their money and everybody sells all their property, now everybody is poor and you don't, you don't want to do that. Um, and the reality is um, oftentimes, you know, people of wealth, know what to do better with wealth than people in poverty. And it's just a reality. And so what you need people of wealth to do in the church is to be of sound business mind and to not grow money so that they can become more wealthy, but so that they can become more generous. And so absolutely, if you're a wealthy person, please don't sell all that you have. Mm -hmm. Make more money so that you can be more generous, so that you can support the church and so that the church can support and be generous to the people in need. And so that's what I want people to see here is it's so important that in our generosity, when we give, when we bless, we do so in some manner, in some way that Jesus Christ gets the credit. And so who are the representatives of Jesus on earth? His church, his leadership. And so we want we want Christ to get the glory. We don't want to get the glory. And so that's why wealthy people should not just go and give all their money. I mean, they certainly can do whatever they want with their money. It's their money give charitably to organizations and bless them and and do things like that. But they should give the majority of their generosity to the church so that Christ gets the credit. And so Christ gets the glory. So Christ is honored. And so that people can ultimately come to faith uh, in Christ. And that's what we want to see. And so that's what they did. Um, They did it. It was a beautiful time. It was an amazing thing. But as we're going to see in the next chapter, you know, these things don't last because the church is full of people. And so I, let me just warn you, a lot of people read Acts chapter two, three, four, and they go, oh, this is what we need to do. Historically speaking, when people enter into these communes, it is ripe for manipulation. Mm-hmm. And often what happens is it, it just becomes very, very dysfunctional and very, very unhealthy. And so, um, I mean, this has been practiced over and over and over again, and it just doesn't work. It, it, it makes itself ripe for cultic abuse and for people to be domineered, misled, and manipulated by spiritual authority. Your money is not my money. What you make is not my money. It's God's money. You need to listen to God. And as he leads you to give it to Sandals Church, then you give it to Sandals Church. But you don't surrender it all to me because it, again, then that puts me in a position where you know, now I have to be not infected with the disease of wealth and the desire to, you know, have all of this stuff. And so, and you see some pastors that get caught up in that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like my favorite, um, one of my favorite lines in The Lord of the Rings is when young uh, Frodo offers the ring to Gandalf. Mm-hmm. He says, you take it. Yep. And he says, don't you dare give me that ring because even I, though wanting to use it for good, would ultimately be bent to use it for evil because that's all that it does. And so, um, you know, it's where the church has gone wrong. You know, there's that saying, Peter um, said, 
uh, silver and gold have I none. Well, there's this famous quote of a Pope saying to um, a young pastor, the church no longer can say that because we do have silver and gold. But this person says, yeah, and neither can you say rise and walk in the name of Jesus. So the church got all this silver and gold, but we lost our power. Hmm. And so we have to be very, very careful. And so, um, you know, I think Sandals is is great at this. We worship in a box. Somebody said last week, they went up to our office. They're like, wow, you guys think out of the box. I'm like, that's because we worship in a box. (laughs) So we have to think outside of a box. Um, But we try to do things very, very cost efficient so that we can give the most money to ministry and make these things happen. So, you know, you know, make money, do well. Um, the exception of that is, is if, if you really feel like it's, it's, you know, it's your core sin, if wealth and greed is your core issues, the only way to combat that is generosity. And for some people, they're so wrapped up in money, like the rich young ruler, they have to give it all away mm-hmm. because that's what they worship. And so again, you know, God's going to speak to every individual on a different basis. But ultimately, I think the best thing for the church is don't give all your money away because then now you're dependent upon the church. And now I have to support you and your family. Your job is to support you and your family. And your job is to bless the church so that the church can take care of the business of Christ and support the poor people within it and help them as they go through difficult times. So that was a long, long conversation. Thank you. We'll take it. Yeah. Uh, One last question here. Yeah, one last question. Um, And it's an example of someone giving this money. So in verse 36, it says, for instance, there was Joseph, one of the apostles, one of the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe That's of Levi. That's a Le- very confusing nickname, by the way. It's substantially Barnabas. more syllables and not even at all related to. It's even more confusing than you know, and I'll tell you in a second. Ooh, whoa. Wow, look at that little teaser there. Yeah. Uh, it says, he was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. I have like a quick random question too. Like the nickname of Barnabas, is that because he's the same Barnabas that, spoiler alert, is going to be traveling with the Apostle Paul later? Yep, absolutely. This is an introduction of one of the major characters and you don't want to miss this guy. Um, There's a lot of major uh, characters that are going to be dropped in the next two chapters and Barnabas is the first one. This is the guy who ultimately will disciple Saul who becomes later uh, known as the Apostle Paul, Mm -hmm. um, an incredible guy. And so there's a lot happening here. So his name is Joseph. Uh, He's not known by that name. He is known by the name of Barnabas. Um, Luke says means uh, son of encouragement. Mm -hmm. I have no idea how Luke thinks it means that because bar means son, nabas does not mean encouragement. So I don't know if it was a colloquialism that was for a certain period of time. Okay. But like, if you try to break down the word Barnabas, it does not mean son of encouragement. So uh, I have no idea how that came to be known as that. Maybe it was something that was later attached to his name because he was an encourager. Uh-huh. Um, and and so um, just like words, you know, um, change meaning, they can completely change meaning based upon their usage. So maybe Barnabas, whatever it originally meant, bar and then nubus, two words, just because of who Barnabas was, became known as the son of encouragement. And so then later, you know, he's feeding that back to us, but don't try to look it up in the Greek because it makes no sense. And so it just makes you scratch your head. What's amazing here is though, it says that um, there's a couple pieces of here that's really important. Uh, So number one, he's a Levite. So Levites serve the priests uh, in the Old Testament. That's their purpose. Um, That was their their place uh, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. And it's amazing. What does Barnabas do his entire life? He serves Paul. Hmm. He comes alongside and he serves. So he lives out his calling. What's so cool here is Hmm. in the Old Testament, Levites were not to own property. At some point in time that changed, they had to own property, probably because they were no longer ruled and reigned uh, by uh, Israelis. There There was no Davidic king any longer. They were under the authority of Rome. But for some reason, Levites now own property. 
And so what's amazing is what he does is he sells his property and he gives it up. And it's almost like he's coming back to the role that his, his lineage was originally called to. And uh, it's also amazing here that he's from Cyprus. And I think it's by no accident that that's where the first missionary journey goes to oh. um, because he has connections there. And so there's a lot of things that's happening. And, and you know, and, and just let me say this for those of you who are um, trying to be used of God, we, you know, our church's focus is on India. We love India. We want to see the gospel go forth and God loves Indian people. And we want to see that. And that's amazing. Not everyone in our church is going to be called to India because there are, there are places where you are going to have influence that nobody has. And so it's interesting that when we watch the gospel march forth, one of the first places that Barnabas goes to is where he's known, where he knows people. And so you just need to understand that all of us have a cultural context. All of us have family members. All of us have friends. We already have people that already know us and we have the relational uh, quotient needed to be able to speak into their lives. And this is what's so tragedy about so much of what we do as the church is we try to proclaim the gospel to strangers, which is, I think we need to do, but that's a whole, that's a lot harder field to till mm-hmm. versus friends that we have. We need to be bold in the areas where we, where we have the relational uh, equity, so to speak, to be bold. And so I just think that that's important. And, um, you know, oftentimes, I see people doing this. Well, you know, I, I've fallen in love with the city. I'm a stranger to the city, but I like Manhattan or I like whatever, but they don't have the relational equity there. And so they go there and they really struggle when the reality is God could really use them in Grand Terrace or San Bernardino, hmm. or God could do miracles with them in Harupa or Corona. Um, and that's just one of the things that I've really been committed to is, is I love the world, but I feel that I have a unique call to Southern California. I think I fit the cultural makeup. I think I can sp- I can speak specifically to the needs. Also seem to be having some uh, um, connections in Hawaii. I think it's because I, I have relatives there, but um, I'm meeting a lot of people who listen uh, from the islands. So uh, mahalo, love you guys. Uh, thanks <laughs> for listening. We see what you're doing. You have a lot yeah. of connections in Hawaii. Yeah. You seem to yeah, connect yeah. with really No Australians well. though. I get no love from Australia. Right yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I am wearing a Hawaiian doing. shirt. So, um, you know, take the gospel where you're most effective. Where are the people that listen to you? Where do you have a relational equity? Where do you have, uh, where have you been given permission to speak? And mm-hmm. um, I, I think you you need to do that. And uh, it's amazing. So Barnabas is a major, major character. So as you're reading this, you need to know him. You need to understand him. He's a guy full of grace. Um, you know, he gives grace to Paul. He gives grace to Mark who writes the gospel of Mark. After he blows it, Paul won't have anything to do with him. Barnabas says, let's give this guy another chance. So Barnabas is, just an incredible, incredible dude. That's awesome. Um, uh, and, you know, the apostle Paul gets most of the credit, but the reality is Barnabas went on missionary journeys as well. Some with Paul, and then they had a disagreement, which we'll get to in a couple chapters, and then they go their own way. But because of those two individuals, Paul and Barnabas changed the world probably as much as any Christians in the history of the world. So, hmm. Awesome. Man, well, this was really good. I'm super excited as we continue to march through and forward with the book of Acts. If you got questions about any of the stuff we've just talked about, future chapters that are coming up, we would love to get those coming in from you guys. You can uh, send those to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the debrief podcast or sandalsearch.com slash the debrief. Send them in to us. We'd love to get them here on the show. And a quick shout out to producer Kelly, whose uh, wife just had her baby. Yeah, if this episode go, sounds a little bit different, that's because uh, we're winging it without him. So <laughs> uh, have fun there at home. Can't wait to see you back here <laughs> on the show and in the room. Good stuff. Pastor Matt, are you ready to uh, get hit with an inspirational quote from our friend Stephanie Yeah, here? hit me with a bat. She, she wrote this herself, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Uh, I didn't actually. This uh, came from someone else. But it says, everybody dies, but not everyone lives. 
Wow. It almost sounds like Gladiator. I love that. Ooh. Oh, it might be, actually. Yeah. I feel like it's a movie tagline. Yeah, yeah. I can yeah. see Russell Crowe saying that in a variety yeah. of different costumes. And if he didn't say you. it, he should say it because he's awesome. Yeah. We could ask him. I don't know why so it. many of my favorite actors go crazy, though, as they age. It's, yep. It happens, man. Hmm. Dude, Mel Gibson, Maybe my brother. Maybe they spend so much time living in someone else's yeah. brain that. Yeah. I just think being the object of adulation is not healthy for anyone. Mm. And over a period of time, it destroys. Mm. That's pretty powerful. Object of adulation. Yeah, Yeah, that was a a pretty big That was an inspirational quote right there. Yes. Itself. I'm dropping vocab digits. (laughs) Uh, I think those are called uh, letters. Yeah. Digits. I I know they're called letters. Thank you. I don't understand how this whole thing works. All right. Perfect. Yeah, smooth landing, guys. We're going to let it end. I love that it always ends somewhat strangely.